this morning we move to the second chapter of Genesis. Now, uh, as you know, the chapter breaks were not in the original. Uh, this was something that was added later just for reference points to help us to understand where we're going to be. All right? So um, this is a terrible break. Uh, chapter 2 is probably the worst break in the text in all of Scripture uh, because it confuses people and makes us think that there's another story starting. It's not. The history is continuing with what we have already been talking about. And so we will be moving into chapter 2, but it is not a change of topic. Uh, this is a summing up of the, of the creation week, which is our prologue for the book. We finished the first chapter last week looking at the sixth day, and we said we will see that God gives a third doxology over his creation, but there is something that he adds. This added thing is dominion. Though this aspect is not the be-all to end-all for the Christian, it is crucial. God here places representatives in his role of governor of the earth. We will see the huge responsibility this was, and God did not make his, this decree without first showing Adam, our father, what this was going to involve. We also uh, saw the food provision that God gives to man and animals. We often think things have always been this way, yet the fall and the deluge brought differences that were catastrophic. We need to eat flesh of the animals now to live healthy and productive lives. But for the first 1,600 years or so, Man only ate fruits and vegetables. This is also true of the animals, and this points to what we have said already a couple weeks ago. There was no death before the fall. From this we learned, it is by the blessing of God that we are fruitful. Man was blessed to subdue the earth. The foreshad this foreshadows the true man's faithfulness. Fruitfulness, rather, sorry. The dominion mandate pictures Christ's dominion. Where Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. God provides all that we need to not have to subdue, subdue through violence. Everything that God made was very good. Today, we will see that God had finished creating and rested on the seventh day. In this, we see the reason that God took so long to create all things. You ever thought about that? Why did God take six days to make all that he made? It just seems like he's just plodding through this thing, but... We need to realize God, as Augustine points out, could have in a nanosecond created everything just as he wanted it to be, just like that, and it had been over, right? But why did he do that? Well, he did that for a reason, because everything that God does is for a reason. And the reason is that God wanted to model what our week should look like. This is what our week should look like. As my wife often reminds me on Saturdays when I want to be lazy, six days you shall labor. <laughs> Man, I wish he'd have said it a different way. <laughs> but, but we need to understand that is what we're told. This, God is laying out what our week should look like. And so, um, God does everything for reason. And so we will also see that what, what it is Moses means by the word rest and from what. Also, we will see in this rest, a shadow of the rest that Jesus has brought in for the church. The ultimate rest we look at. From this, God completed everything he created before the end of the sixth day. This points to the work of the cross. This is rest and not leisure. God blessed the seventh day, the change of Sabbath days, and what they point to. There, is, there was in the morning the seventh day, not stating the end of the day does have eschatological implications. If you will, stand to honor the reading of God's word. 
as we read Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord reads, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Thus far the reading of the word, let us go now to the Lord in prayer. Blessed and most holy God, we thank you, Father, for this your word. We thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit that has both made us alive, but it also gives us spiritual eyes by which we can see and understand your word. We pray, Lord God, that you will help us with that, God, that you will instruct us, and that, God, we will be encouraged to trust and rest in you only, not only for salvation, but for all things. So we know you are a loving God who cares for your people, and Lord, we see that even in the institution of the day of rest. We praise you and we thank you for it, and may you be glorified in all things that are said here today. For it is in your blessed and holy Son, Jesus Christ's wonderful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God completed everything he created before the end of today, verse uh, 2. This verse serves as a concluding and, introdu uh, and introductory statement. We are told that in connection with day 6, everything was complete. There was nothing left undone at the close of the sixth day. This introduces the idea that God was going to be in a place to rest as nothing was left undone. The idea of rest is one that is crucial to understand uh, the scriptures. If we're going to understand the scriptures, we need to understand this rest, this rest. And the reason is because it is a major motif. In other words, it is an underlying theme that goes throughout the scriptures. And we need to understand when we come to places in the scriptures that speaks of resting, it ultimately is kind of pointing back to this day and forward to what it is pointing to. So it's a reminder, it's a motif that goes throughout the scriptures, and one that we must have straight in our heads. The reason is that after this, we are given the rest idea for a God who needs no rest. And think about that. God needs absolutely no rest. He's, in, he's indefatigable. I have to be very careful to say that for, properly, but he cannot be fatigued ever. He's, he's unable to be fatigued. His energy is endless, and he has almighty powers. What we call him God Almighty, right? Because he is all-powerful, and he cannot be fatigued. But yet he rested. Okay? He took a rest. And so we need to understand what this means. So what is the idea being conveyed to us? What is God telling us and showing us that he rested? That all God had intended to create from nothing he created in six days. Exodus 20, 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth to see and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This points to the work of the cross. What we see is this. In this is that God the Son finished his creation. When we think of redemption, we, we need to think of it in creation terms. The world had been destroyed by sin and the fall. Now, I can illustrate several weeks ago, a whole masterpiece picture being painted. And then afterwards, someone taking a knife to it. Now, you wouldn't say, what's those cuts? That picture's fine. No, you'd say it was destroyed. It was ruined, Right? The creation that God had made itself also was ruined by the fall. The sin that entered the world ruined it. It cursed it. It's the words that God uses. It cursed uh, the, the creation. So we need to understand that. The world was destroyed by sin and the fall, but Christ was making it new. Revelation 21.5 reads, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. But all things are new. And if Christ is making them new, he is still working. But is this true? In the sense that we're speaking of, it's not. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, 
and let us run with endurance space that is set before us. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, when I preach this text, I remind you that his laboring doesn't sit down. And you know how I know that? Because as a kid, when I'd have to work on the construction cycle with my dad, he'd say, boy, get that lead out of your butt, stand up, and do something. Men who are working and are getting to sit down. They just don't. It's not allowed. And so, well, unless you're here. But the point that I'm trying to make is if you're active in doing, you're not sitting. So Christ sitting beside the majesty on high, on the throne of God, signified to his people that his work of redemption was complete. Jesus would not be sitting if there was more work to be done in order to save you. Christ has been given the will as the testator and laying claim to all who were given to him, and they are in their time being made new. This, that is, we are not all made new in an instant. See, when Christ said, it's finished, Michael Ware was not redeemed yet. The work was done for him to be redeemed, but that work was going to be applied in the future. Why? Because Michael Ware did not in any sense exist. He was not extant at the time. I did not exist. My soul did not exist. My body did not exist. No part of me existed. So the redemption of my sinful soul could not be applied to me until the future. And Paul talks about a day of visitation for all those who are in Christ. My day of visitation came when I was 24. Yours at a different time. So we're all being made new at different moments through the Holy Spirit. And then, afterwards, it is our duty to be by Christ through the Holy Spirit to make all things new by bringing all into conformity to Christ, especially in our own lives. In our own lives, we are to bring every thought captive and make our obedience full so that all things are being made new. So how do we do this? Because, it, I mean, it is finished, right? John 19, 28-30 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, the Sarmon was sitting there, and he was his up and put it into his mouth. When Jesus had received the Sarmon, he said, It is finished. And bowed his head, bowed his head, he it. The work of making a new creation was done. It was completed. It was finished. And this new creation, this new earth, is being renewed over time as the elect are born again. As we're born again, and we bring ourselves, our families, and our homes into conformity to the Word of God, and then as we go out into the world and we claim the name of Christ over all things, then those things begin to be made new. As we call lost sinners to repent the gospel, they are made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. That's how it worked in the first century when Rome was brought to her knees and made new. It's how it's going to work here by God's grace. So this rest is not leisure. Verse 2 again. Now, as we have already said, God rested because he had completed his work. His creating was done. All that God had intended to make, he had made. But we must not think that just because he rested, he was doing nothing. There were still things going on. This cannot be that he was doing nothing. It cannot be because all that God made would have fallen apart. Hebrews 1.3 reads, Who being Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself first sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So now, here we have him doing both things. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high and upholding all things by the word of his power. It's, it's amazing to me to think about how great and powerful our Savior is that while he was giving his body to be broken on the cross, dying for our sins, he was sustaining the universe. He was holding things together. He was making the, the earth to turn and, and bring all in Africa somewhere. He was doing this work even while he was working your salvation out on the cross. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. So I'm going to believe it. So that, that, means, that means this rest is not a rest from all work necessarily. Only a certain type of work. 
It is by the power of his word that all things were being held together. This also has the idea of working. So John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, what my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Pointing to what we see in Hebrews. So then we see that this does not mean that God quit everything. God didn't sit down with a coat and a smile and just put his feet up. Wasn't that kind of rest? Rather, it is a specific kind of rest. God, rather, while doing all that was needed, while doing all that was needed to hold everything together, contemplated what he had made. Day six says that he looked at all that he created and said that it was very good. And see, we see here at the end of the sixth day, God began to contemplate and evaluate, like we said last week, all that he had accomplished. And so he was meditating on his work. Now, this points us what we should be doing. Right? He was admiring his work. And this is what worship should look like for us. Worship is work. Right? Now, it wasn't work for me when I was a kid. It was nap time. But for the, for the believer, worship should be work. We should be uh, admiring his work. We should be contemplating it. We should be singing his praises because of that work and praying and confessing our sins together. Rest from our work does not mean God gives us a pass to do nothing. I would dare say that there's no sense in which God would encourage laziness or just absolute pointless leisure. That is a construct of the 20th century. It is not something that you're going to find in the scriptures. Because, because here's the thing. Husbands, I want you to think about this. You work, right? Hopefully six days in some way or manner. And then you get up on the Lord's day and you say, Woo! It's our day of rest. We got to do nothing. And mama is running around chasing kids, cooking your lunch, and getting everybody ready to come to church. That ain't restful. I've seen it done. I don't want that job. Right? It's not restful. Sometimes it can be even more taxing all days. So we have to understand that this resting is not a resting from just work in general, all work. It is a restful, worshipful mindset that we take on on this day. So, God blessed the seventh day, verse 3. God rest and the blessings on the seventh day. The reason was that God would set this as a pattern for all people. It was to be the establishing of the pattern for men, work and rest. One day out of seven was to be set aside for the same kind of rest that we saw in the last point. God then called all men in the blessing and sanctification of the seventh day to admire and think upon worshipfully the work of his hand. We are to see things that God has done and give proper awe and praise to them. I'm going to be doing that hopefully at Calpians and not at the other park, which is all healing and stuff. We don't do that. <laughs> me, me and Andy's going to vote for Calpians. This, was, this is why the reason behind the Sabbath changes and why the requirements attached to them also do so. Look at your handout. You can read along with me at the words of Calvin on the blessing, uh, on God blessing the day. Calvin says, the design of the institution must be always kept in memory, for God did not command men simply to keep holiday every seventh day, as if he delighted in their indolence. All you do is sit around with your feet propped up and tell your wife to get you something, you're being indolent. Look at it later. But rather, that they, being released from all other business, might go regular their minds to the creator of the, of the, of the world. Lastly, that is a sacred rest, which was from the implements of the world, that it may dedicate that it may dedicate them entirely to God. But now, since men are so backward to celebrate this, the justice, wisdom, and power of God, and to consider his benefits, that even when they are most faithfully admonished, they still remain torpid. No slight stimulus 
is given by God's own example, and the very precept itself is thereby rendered amiable. For God cannot either more gently allure or more effectually incite us to obedience than by inviting and exhorting us to the imitation of himself. Besides, we must know that this is to be common employment not of one age or people only, but of the whole human race. Afterwards, in the law, a new precept concerning the Sabbath was given, which should be peculiar to the Jews, and but for a season, because it was a legal ceremony for a spiritual rest, the truth of which was manifested in Christ. Therefore, the Lord the more frequently testifies that he had given in the Sabbath a symbol of sanctification to his ancient people. Therefore, when we hear that the Sabbath was abrogated by the coming of Christ, we must distinguish between what belongs to the perpetual government of human life and what properly belongs to ancient figures, the use of which was abolished when truth was fulfilled. Spiritual rest is the mortification of flesh, so sons of, man, uh, sons of God should no longer live unto themselves or indulge their own inclinations. So far as the Sabbath was a figure of this rest, I say, it was but for a season, but inasmuch as it was commanded him from the beginning that they might employ, enjoy, you know, employ themselves in the worship of God, it is right that it should continue to the end of the world. Sum that up for you real quickly. We're general equity theonomists. The law was given, and it only applies as the general principle of that law still applies. What is the principle behind the Sabbath given in the law? We see it here, and we see it after Christ. It is restful, worshipful thought of God in everything that we do. So it doesn't mean you can't ride your bike. But as you ride your bike, thank the Lord. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy yourself. It doesn't mean you've got to lock yourself in a closet like a minute. That's not what the Sabbath is. That's fasting, friend. That's not feasting. We need to be feasting. We need to get the difference in our heads. Because if you do not, we will be legalistic and bind upon the conscience of our brothers things that we won't touch with our fingers. Ergo, we will be Pharisees. So, what we need to understand is first, there is uh, three Sabbath institutions uh, and from different ends. First is the one we now base in our text and was given as a celebration of God's creative work and it is expected of all men to follow this day. The second was that one given in the law as a ceremonial remembrance of God delivering the Jews from Egypt and with a shadow of sanctification of the priestly Jewish nation. By the way, God gives two separate reasons why he gave that. The first we just read in Exodus 11, uh, 20, verse 11. The next one is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I believe, where he tells us it is because he's given the land there to uh, celebrate the Sabbath. The third and final uh, is that, uh, that given as a blessing of feasting and worship that has now been given to the church through Jesus. All three of these in their place were blessed and brought blessing on the ones who submitted to and observed it. There is promises of blessing in the blessing. And we should not forget that our God is faithful. We must set aside our weekly and temporal cares as much as possible and our celebration of God, feasting. You're not going to take your kid and say, all right, happy birthday, we're going to celebrate your birthday, and you get no cake or anything to eat today, and don't touch anything you might enjoy. <laughs> Poor child. Right? You like that? Can't do it. Not your day. Tomorrow will be your day. No. That's not what God does. So quickly we will discuss why the days changed. The change of Sabbath days is what they point to. The first thing that we need to see is that the day change is not new to the New Testament church. That's what we get all the time. We have these uh, what Hebrew nation guys, and they'll come out and say, the Sabbath is Saturday, it's always been the Saturday, it's always going to be Saturday, and if you don't follow it on Saturday, then you're sinning. You know, and then you've got the Sabbath Adventist who's also going to help us we celebrate on the Lord's Day rather than Saturday. But um, we can say this because the fall caused a day change, right? The first thing that we need to see is that the day change is not new. 
Look at your hand once again. Now, I've, sh I've given you this uh, chart before, and I'm going to explain, explain it in a little more detail. This chart comes from Bill Heiser's book, uh, which I've linked below. Uh, it's uh, Sunday as Thursday Sabbath. We won't get into that, the, the meaning of the book or the text of the book. We will see here um, the way things should have been. So God's original week is the six days we've just covered, and now we're covering the seventh day, which is the day of God's rest. But it's the first full day of man's life. Man didn't come onto the scene until Saturday, sometime the second half of the day. God gave him work, and uh, and then and then he rested, right? So then God gave him work to do. Adam started the task of the dominion by naming the creatures he would have authority over. Then Adam gets a wife and marries her. The seventh day was the first was the day God rested and was the first full day for Adam. Then the first full day. God seems to say, seventh, seventh day rest is for me, uh, is the first day for you. And it is the first day for you. By the way, then what we have is the fall, uh, was a sacrilege sin, because it was the day of worship. Adam was to contemplate and honor the works of God in his Sabbath rest. But instead, he church and gave it to Satan. Exactly what he did. He took the, the, the covenant symbols and he gave them over to someone else. The fall then changed the order of restful worship. You see here, it's supposed to be on the first day he didn't rest. He took dominion for, for himself, uh, God, and so his rest day became the seventh day, not the first. Um, the fall then changed the order of restful worship. Man wanted to work out his religion and, pre uh, and prematurely take from God. Then he can work all week to rest. Do you see the change? God says, I'm going to do all the work and let you rest on the first day of the week. Man said, nope, I'm going to take it for myself. God said, then you work all week and you can rest on the last day. You will work towards your rest. And that is the theme that we see in the Old Testament. This, do these things and be pleasing to me. Oh, you can't do them, can you? That's kind of the theme that we see throughout the Old Testament. All right? Um, so, so he labored six days and rested. But this is not the only change of the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. We get to the giving of the law at Sinai. The day changes. And we can see, yes, in the change that the calendar, uh, see this fact in the, the fact that the calendar changes. All right, so I'm going to read from you Rush Dooney. He says, the Hebrew calendar began in, in its dating from the deliverance from Egypt. As Ewing points out, the Hebrews retained the Egyptian calendar of 12 months of 30 days. But instead of adding the five supplementary days at the end of the year, they added three in the end of the sixth month and two at the end of the twelfth month. The 15th day of Aviv, the first month, which is coming up, had to be a Sabbath year, a, a Sabbath every year, which meant that the first and the eighth of Aviv were fixed Sabbaths, as were the seven Sabbaths following the 15th of Aviv. And we get that from Leviticus 23, 6, 7, 11, and 15 through 16. The 50th day would then be Pentecost. And Ewing says, Now the Sabbath of Aviv, the 15th, being fixed by date, it follows that these seven Sabbaths must have uh, on fixed dates and would all as followed. Aviv 22, 29, our year 6, 13, 20, 27, and 7, 7, 4. By no possibility can there be Sabbaths week from Aviv 15 to 7, 4 unless those Sabbaths came on fixed dates of the month every year. Now, since the date, date of the month was constant, the day of the week was variable. This means that once in seven years, each of them would fall on every single day of the week, just as your birthday comes on a different day of the week every year. You get that? Look at the calendar I've given you. 
Mine's pretty in color, but the church ain't spending another ink to yell black and white. All right, so what I, the reason I chose this one is because it has the Sabbath fallen on a Monday evening, Tuesday Right? And so the first, 8th, 15th, 22nd, and 29th, just as he listed, have to be Sabbaths by command of God. But they're falling on a Tuesday, not a Saturday. Why? Because the day of the, of the week that was the Sabbath changed every year because just like in our calendar, if it's on Tuesday this year, it's on Wednesday next year. So rather than having Saturday Sabbaths that didn't happen until like the 4th century, we had a change of okay calendar that has it changing every year. Why? To the Hebrews, every seven years, which was a jubilee, you will have had a rest day every day of the week. There's coming a day when every day will be a rest day with God. You will enjoy rest perpetually. You get it? Does that make sense? So this whole idea, well, it's not on Saturday anymore, that's it, that means it's sin. Well, it never was supposed to be, so your presupposition is wrong. So the change should not be a drastic change to us, right? Um, this means that Saturday Sabbaths are meant. So when we get to the New Testament, the change to a first-day Sabbath would not be strange. We see it is you actually doing what we have been told Christ was going to do. He is undoing all the works of the devil. He's bringing back the things to its original creation understanding. There was evening and morning the seventh day, verse 3. Here much is made about the fact that God does not say that there was evening and morning the seventh day. They claim that this date is perpetual and that God did not end this rest. This gives them license to say that just like the never-ending seventh day, all the other days were long periods of time. There are two problems with this line of thinking in the text. There is grammatical indicators that this is not perpetual rest. And even if we have already proved that God is only resting from his created acts, creating acts, we can show from other scriptures that he went back to that work after the seventh day. We will take these then in order. It is clear that God rested, God's rest is only referring to the rest on the seventh day, which is over. We can see from the grammar that this is true. Kaiser says, quote, Look at the middle of verse 2. Notice that the text does not say, and he is resting, present tense, on the seventh day, but that he rested on the seventh day. And you see the same past tense used in verse 3. The Hebrew is qual, present tense, third masculine, singular, indicating a completed action. In other words, God rested, and he is back at work again, end quote. Thus, the rest of God, uh, that God took, uh, that the rest that God took was an event that has been finished and is no longer in action. This leads us to our next problem. God has begun to create since the start of the seventh day, thus bringing an end to this rest. Psalm 102.18 reads, This will be written for the generations come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The psalmist clearly states that there were more people to create. Remember what I said. Redemption could not be applied to me because I in no way existed at the time of the death of Christ on the cross. Resurrection could not, be, could not be applied to me at that point. Why? I did not exist. My body did not exist. My soul did not exist. And yet, God created me later. End of the abortion discussion in the church. God is creating babies in the womb, just like he created Adam. Every time a child is conceived, God is creating something new. That's it is a person. And as we will see, yeah, probably in two weeks, I'd like to tell you next week, it'll probably be two weeks. In two weeks, we're going to see that when God breathed life into Adam, all his capacities were present at one time. Likewise, when a child is conceived in the womb, all its capacities, as far as its soul and mental capacities, are there. That doesn't mean to think like you can think, but he is soulish. He, is a, he or she is a living being. To, to end that, that life is murder. Not stating the end of the day does have a lot implication there. We are pointed to the promise of the day with an eternal rest. This points to a time that there will be no more striving. 
But much like the Lord continuing to work, even while resting, we will not be sitting around on clouds playing cards. That's not, that's not what's going to be happening. You're going to have work to do. You're going to have duties to do. But it's going to be without sin or toil or sweat of the nose. Right? We, we won't have to worry about work in the same manner we do now. Uh, we will be able to set aside faith and know what God has done. We'll be able to do worship completely, perfectly. We do not know as we will when all sin is removed from our minds and understanding. We know this is true as the writer of Hebrews argues in Hebrews 4. Turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, the word of the Lord reads, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of those should have come short. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as most of them, but the word which they received did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God created, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those of, to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying to David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had not given the rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken him rest. He would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest of the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So, first the writer shows that there remained a rest. Plus, strength of faith, verses 1 through 3. God had rest that went into something, and he, quote, he, and he quotes our passage this morning in verses 4 and 5. Then says that David spoke of this rest in verses 6 and 7. And shows that there is no rest found in Joshua, verse 8, by the way, was 8, by the way. This, this means that this rest, this is who points to, remains, verse 9. Know that the work was done, verse 10, I see there, uh, who rested like God did. Christ has entered his rest, and we covenantally with him enter it every Lord's day. This is our rest. Every Lord's day, we are covenantally allowed as the presence of the Father through Jesus Christ. We can only come to the Father as we're in him. And because we are in him, we get a taste of this rest every Lord's day. But there still remains a permanent rest to enter. And this is why we have to be careful of apostasy and make sure that we don't go astray. Therefore, we are assured of this eschatological rest to come if we're resting in Christ. If we're in him, we have eternity of rest to come. We will one day, if we persevere, enter into this rest and will fully appreciate our blessings and the Christ completed for us. May our Father bless us to long for and enjoy this rest that he has given us through Jesus Christ. May we rest in worship, rejoice in peace, and may we contemplate the great goodness we see in the finished work of the Holy Spirit, who through Christ made all things and is making all things new. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this rest day. We thank you, God, for the feasting and the celebrating. We thank you, God, for the singing and the worship, the prayers, God. And we thank you most of all that the blood that you have shed has been blessed to us, that we rest in you every week and for eternity to come. We praise you. We thank you for these things. And we pray this in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.